I'm Jacob Schatz. And I'm Bryce Miller. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Atlas. This is part two of our unofficial magic story of Ixalan. That's where we go over the story from an entire setting, talk about what goals it set up or needed to have, and how it addressed those goals. We did not initially plan for this to be a two-parter, but we got into some personal topics last week, and it seemed appropriate to call it there. So here we are, leading back into it, just having gone over the start of Rivals of Ixalan story. We finished up about three quarters, maybe five-sixths of the way through The Flood, the first story in Rivals of Ixalan. It's quite dense, and also very important. It is very important. For a lot of reasons. Thank you for all the support that you guys sent me after last week's episode. I wanted to talk about the tail end of the story, though. Like Bryce said, this is dense, and there are a lot of little grindy character moments for both Jace and Vraska. And the conversation that they have at the end, where Vraska is sort of caring for Jace as he's managing all of these rediscovered memories... And I love this conversation and the way that it's written because it feels a lot like not just a conversation between Jace and Vraska, the characters, but it does a really good job of exemplifying the color philosophies of these two characters. Jace is a mono-blue character, and throughout this conversation, he speaks in mostly conjecture. A blue philosophy likes to think about things the way that they might be, the way that they could be, the way that you could make them to be. And that kind of bites Jace here. As he's reckoning with all of these memories, he gets caught up in things the way that they could have been, and how he used to reckon with the gaps in his memory. For example, he used to imagine that his parents hated him because that took the sting off of being effectively abandoned from his perspective. A very kiddish mentality of, well, fine, I didn't want to have you anyway, dumb old parents. Oof, that's rough. Vraska's green-black philosophy is grounded in reality. It is a stark contrast from Jace. Vraska has a very strong sense of self, and this is established in pretty much every story that she's been in. So as she's trying to talk Jace down from all of these negative thoughts and all of these concerns that he has, she brings up who he has been demonstrably throughout Ixalan Block, which is a good person who wants to help people and solve problems. Instead of focusing on all of the things that could be, she says, take who you are, take all of who you are, because you finally have that for once. You've seen who you want to be. You have the power and the agency to be who you want to be. Get out there and do it. And then the most important part of this story, bar none, is when Jace admits to using illusions to make himself look buffer because that's the dorkiest thing a human being could do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh, it's god so good oh i love it i wonder how much effort that takes do you ever think there's a time where he's really really strained by some telepathic trick and goes well i could get a tiny bit more juice if i dropped the muscle illusion nope nope i can't do it i can't for my self-image do that <laughs> Do you think that he makes himself look even more ripped after he's been hanging out with Gideon? If not actively, then absolutely subconsciously. Do you think he gives himself a better jawline? I don't know. There's so many options here. I don't think much about Jace's jawline. Admittedly, I think about my own, but that's more of a trans thing than it is an illusion thing. 
Being a transgender illusionist would present a lot of weird image issues. On one hand, you can, with purpose, do anything that you feel looks appropriate. On the other hand, it is by definition a lie, an illusion. Being an abstract painter and an illusionist would lead to a lot of weird image issues. <laughs> You're that is not just wrong. barely a joke. <laughs> I'll accept it. Jacob, I accept you for who you are. Aw. Even if that is a person who makes I can't I can't judge. We've we've I was been about through to this say, song I was and about dance to call before. You on that real, I real have hard. no high house from which to throw glass stones. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> this is amazing. All right, bringing it back. Bringing it back. Next story. Glimpse the far side of the sun. Picks up with Whatley and then moves into more Jason. To be fair, it starts with Whatley and then moves to Whatley and Angrath. And this is where we get confirmation that Angrath has not seen his children in 14 years. Ouch. Which would make anyone a little peeved. Whatley and Angrath walk about headlong into Saint Alenda, being Alenda of the vampires, I suppose not legend, but religion. She is the progenitor of the vampire line. Turns out she was here, hibernating on Araska. She wakes up and runs into Hwatli and Angrath, and they're like, Hey, did you know that vampires are jerks? And she goes, They're what? I didn't tell them to be jerks. Why would I tell them to be jerks? This is something I really did not expect from this storyline. When we started off, it was abundantly clear from cards like Vampire Conquistador hmm, that the vampires were very directly modeled off of Spanish conquistadors of the, you know, 13, 14, 1500s or so. I don't remember the exact dates. It's been a while since I've had those history classes or watched Crash Course World History, but that's beside the point. So it was clear that there was a religious base to their conquering. But what I did not see coming was their most central religious figure showing up and telling them, no, no, that's not how you do it, which is a very interesting religious hypothetical. I definitely appreciate it as a way of saying in story that the vampire conquerors are wrong. It's not something that you can just have any random character say and have it be as effective. When you have a saint who has been displaced from the religion for a long period of time, come back and explicitly state what the original purpose of the mission was for. That is a powerful statement on your imperial nasty villain class. As we get into Jace's perspective in this story, we confirmed a really interesting, really crucial detail that we touched on last time and theorized months ago. I'm not even sure in what episode. As Jace is combing through the memories that he has now regained, He's looking over his encounters with Nickelboss and maybe not encounter quite, his interaction with Ugin back on Zendikar. He also hasn't remembered the name Bolas yet. He remembers the concept of a dragon and something of some vague memories of Amonkhet. But so far, that's very vague. But Ugin he remembers. And in turning over the memory of his interaction with Ugin, he finds that it isn't correct and that Ugin actually made him forget something, that something was a directive to go to Ixalan when the metaphorical fecal matter hits the metaphorical fan, which isn't necessarily significant from a goals of story, goals accomplished perspective, but it does mean that we can address that 
what I would call a plot hole if Jace had ended up here arbitrarily. At this point in the story, though, we're still not 100% sure why Ugin chose to send Jace to Ixalan. We have conjectures. People can't leave the plane, so maybe he'd be safe here. Or maybe if Bolas followed him, Bolas would be stuck here too. But then what? Well, Jace finds a maze. A much smaller maze than he's used to, because it's the lock for a door in Orozka, but it's still a maze. Hmm. 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 pretty quickly identifies that this is the symbol of the Azorius. What are the Azorius doing on Ixalan? Were there any famous Azorius planeswalkers, Jace asks? This moment was slightly dampened by us having foreknowledge of things in the set, but also, wait, Azor is a planeswalker? And is an is and not a was? Wait, Azor is here? Like he's here on Ixalan? Apparently. What? Mazes, Azorius symbols, a giant sphinx who says his name is Azor? Yeah. Checks out. This block has done a very good job of coalescing a couple of weird story points or addressing not necessarily plot holes, but providing more information for things that we weren't sure about. Frankly, it's, it's impressive. We didn't really know who Azor was. All we knew was that he was the Pyron of the Azorius Guild, and that he designed the implicit maze seen in Dragon's Maze, and that he engineered the Guild Pact, and by association, the Guild Pact failsafe that turned Jace into a living Guild Pact. But we knew nothing about Azor as a person, as far as I am aware. And perhaps because of my human biases, I assumed Azor was a human? Turns out he's actually a sphinx. And yes, he's here on Ixalan. I'm going to make a statement, and I know you're going to talk me down from it, but I'm going to make it anyway. I think that Ixalan block was a more fulfilling mystery block than Shadows over Innistrad was. No, I think I agree. Oh, oh. Wow. Yeah, the issue with Shadows of Innistrad's story is that it was a very cool mystery, except that the way the information was doled out made it a little bit too easy to confirm the outcome before a reveal could be made. Once we had the Tamiyo's journal hints, we could say with almost 100% certainty that it had to be Eldrazi. And given that Kozlek and Ulamog had been incinerated, we could easily conclude that it had to be Emrakul-related. This happened maybe two weeks after spoilers. It took some time, but it was so conclusive that it shut out any of the other wild theories that had been spun up to that point. If that had been one not fully substantiated theory among the sea of other compelling but also unsubstantiated theories, then it would have been great up until, oh god, it's Emrakul. My only caveat for Ixalan block is that it wasn't necessarily presented as a mystery, obviously, it's it's more adventuring. But we knew where the Immortal Sun was. We needed to find Oraska. We didn't expect there to be Azor here, but other details we had pretty well worked out. The reason that I say it in the first place is that Ixalan just had more questions with more open-ended answers that led to more interesting theories. Someone did suggest Azor being part of this, relatively early on, but it wasn't a theory that everybody looked at and went, oh, of course, like, obviously, like, that's the only explanation. That's the only possible thing that it could be. There were a lot of people who went, oh, yeah, I can see that. That'd be neat. But it didn't immediately dominate the conversation. And it was more satisfying when it turned out to be true. People were rewarded for putting disparate pieces together. And 
trying to weave threads between otherwise unrelated questions. Solving their own implicit maze, if you will. And if you won't, there are no refunds. The next story is The Arbiter of Law Left Chaos in His Wake. The first bit of the story is Hwatli and Angrath meeting up with Tishana. Hwatli making her dinosaur stand on top of Angrath while she and Tishana run towards the city. And then eventually everyone's in Oraska. The pirates have caught up with them. Hwatli is there. Tishana is there. The vampires have already been there. Angrath catches up and yells, You made your dinosaur stand on top of me! And now we're all in one place. And then Vraska's crew hears a mental message from Jace, and then the immortal son disappears. And then we cut to Vraska. As Jace and Vraska converse with Azor, what emerges is an incredibly well-done blue-white villain, I would argue, believe it or not. I'm thinking about that word villain, and I'm not sure I... Hmm. I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I think I feel positively. Okay. Let me, let me explain a little bit. Go on. From this conversation, we learn that Azor is not native to Ravnica, nor is he native to Ixalan. He has been jumping throughout the multiverse, well, maybe not recently, but thousands of years ago, he was bouncing around the multiverse, creating systems of law, including the system of guilds on Ravnica, which he claims here is a perfect system. The idea of Azor being a villain, I think, is exemplified in a very brief passage here. Azor merely puffed his chest. The guilds are a perfect system. The guilds were a perfect system, Vraska corrected, punctuating each syllable with as much venom as she could and directing it at Azor. But the guilds have turned malicious and cruel in your absence. And whose fault is that? Azor asked. I gave Ravnica its guilds, just as I gave countless other worlds other perfect systems of law and governance. Cutting a little bit, Azor says, If my governments, my gifts, soured, the fault lies with the citizens. Number one, Azor went to multiple worlds and meddled in their affairs. Maybe not meddled if you want to use more neutral vocabulary, but he created what he believed was something right for this plane. Two, being presented with a statement that the systems he created are not good or not useful, he says the people are at fault. This is a very blue-white perspective. Azor has had thousands of years to iterate these ideas, and he believes, from the evidence that he has seen, the communities and governments that he creates are perfect. Because he feels his own logic is so impenetrable, anything wrong with them cannot be the system's fault. Meanwhile, as he is denying that these things could be potentially not totally good, there are legitimately bad things happening that he would not fix. As you're describing it, I'm thinking about this logic, and I'm putting myself in Azor's shoes in a way. I am a software engineer. If I created a piece of software with the intent of handing it over to a specific client to use, and then it breaks, and I say it is entirely upon the client to use the software exactly as directed, I would be fired. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a concept of resilience in the systems that you build. It's not just in the moment. You build things with a certain amount of tolerance to handle cases where, hey, maybe the user is not going to use this for exactly what you expect them to do. Some amount of that has to be okay, because it can't just 
completely implode upon them putting in a wrongly formatted variable. And the other half of it is, a lot of the systems that Azor designed incorporate him into the system. Let's take Ravnica as an example. Azor establishes himself as the parent of the Azorius Guild. That is a role within the structure of the guild that has weight, meaning, and as we'll see, consequences to the way that it interacts with the Guild Pact, which impacts all of the other guilds. So he sets himself up as this very important linchpin of how Ravnica and the guild system is supposed to function, and then he just pieces out. That's like if I said, yes, I will perform regular maintenance on this software and answer any questions that you have, and then I fly to Jamaica. The people using that software, sure, they'll be able to use it for a while, and they'll be able to keep doing things for a while, and maybe they'll even find another guy who can step in the role and answer some questions about it, but after a while, they're gonna have to start building new pieces onto it by themselves. And it's your fault that they had to do that because you left! To dip briefly into some of the color philosophy discussion here, I think it's important to remember that there are some types of villain that are not going to acknowledge themselves as a villain. In fact, ideally most good villains won't do that. In Magic, if you are a black-aligned villain, then you may say, yeah, I'm a jerk, but that doesn't matter. If you are a white or probably blue or especially blue-white villain, you are not going to think you're the bad guy. It's incompatible. If you are doing something for yourself and you know it to be for yourself and believe it's for yourself, you cannot be a white-aligned villain. If you are doing something for a community or for a world, and if you are exceedingly logical and believe that what you have created for communities is perfect, then you can be a blue-white-aligned villain. After a verbal confrontation and a physical confrontation with Azor, who I just realized we've now been pronouncing his name wrong because I asked Allison Lures about this. Oh dear. And it's pronounced Azor, specifically with the A being like, I really appreciated how she told this to me. You know how the character of the Fonz on Happy Days goes, <laughs> hey! It's like, it's like that. Azor. I'm pretty sure I've been saying Azor. Well, then I've been screwing it up, and I was the yeah. one who was given perfect information. The system is flawed. The people are at fault. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, geez, Jacob. Don't try to lump me into your wrongness. <laughs> I do say the Azorius as though it were the letters U-H, but I know I say Azor, the forum of Azor. But the Azorius sounds kind of weird, which is probably habit. At any rate, the fight with Azor comes to a head. And Vraska is about to kill Azor for his crimes against Ravnica. And it's at this point that Jace says, No, I'm the Guild Pact. He's part of Ravnica. And I know who I want to be. So I'm going to take responsibility for this. And Vraska goes, Okay. And Jace invokes the Guild Pact's magic to lay judgment upon Azor in a super cool scene. Oh, I love this scene. While he has Azor cowering and very, very small for such a giant sphinx, Azor spits out why the Immortal Sun was created, and it was to imprison Nicol Bolas. And Jace remembers exactly who Nicol Bolas is, and Vraska remembers that she's working for Nicol Bolas, and they both independently go, Oh, no. After gleaning that information and having the final piece of his memory slot back into place, Jace officially makes Azor the caretaker of Useless Island, the island that he showed up on when he first got to Ixalan. 
when we come back to Ixalan, I will be sorely disappointed if we do not get a legendary land named Useless Island. And it will look immaculate. <laughs> this theme provides an extraordinarily important piece of a puzzle that Jacob and I are putting together. We'll need to wait until we get through the rest of the story so that we can use the remaining space to theorize. The next story is entitled Sabotage. And it starts like a millennia and a half-ish ago. We start off with Ugin meeting Azor to discuss the plan to finally get rid of Nicol Bolas once and for all. A plan that I'm sure went very well. They talk about creating the Immortal Sun, and where they're going to put it, namely Ixalan. And then they talk about how Ugin is going to have to lure Nicol Bolas somewhere, and that somewhere is Tarkir. This addresses one of those not-quite-plot holes that I alluded to earlier. During Tarkir block, Ugin got got in a fight to the death with Nicol Bolas. And at the time, I don't think I ever questioned why he was there. It seemed fine that playing with dragons, playing where Ugin often spawns dragons, Ugin's here sometimes. However, we now know the reason to have been Ugin wanted to fight and subdue Nicol Bolas on Tarkir to take him to Ixalan to then trap him with the Immortal Sun. The question then becoming, why would you pick a one-on-one -on -one fight to the death with Nicobolas in the first place? But he didn't. Bolas was, in his villainous way, one step ahead of Ugin and Azor. Because that's what he does. That's his special power, is being one step ahead of you. Bolas also gets an extremely cruel moment in this story, where he rips off someone's arm and slaps them around until they stop screaming. And I appreciate these moments because... Bolas is not just a mastermind, he is also extraordinarily cruel, and at his heart, a dragon. I don't know why, but I appreciate these little moments where we see that he is, at his heart, a big scaly lizard who really loves just tearing people to shreds sometimes. He's not always cool, calm, collected mastermind. He's got some red mana in there, too. The rest of this story from the past is stuff that we kind of already knew. Ugin gets died, but doesn't quite die because Sarkhan's there. Bolas runs off and continues doing whatever it is that Bolas does. And Azor is stuck on Ixalan, having his spark in an artifact and just kind of waiting and waiting and, uh, and really waiting. Now with his memories relatively in order, Jace flashes back to when he attempted to intrude upon Nicol Bolas' mind on Amonkhet. And he realizes one very key thing. Bolas has designs upon Ravnica. He has his army of immortals that are all undead. He has the planar bridge that can transport non-living matter. And shortly, he'll have the immortal sun that traps planeswalkers places. And all of that is going to come down on Ravnica. Frasca doesn't take this news quite well. Frasca considers Ravnica her home. And... Her home is something that is very important to her. It is integral to who she is. And as someone with a very strong sense of self, any intrusion on one's home is a mortal offense. But she knows that if she goes back to Nicol Bolas, knowing what she does, and it was already established earlier on when she gets the job from Bolas that she cannot keep him out of her mind. She is completely an open book to him. And even if she did, one, that would be suspicious. Two, not even Jace probably one of the best mind mages in the multiverse could keep Bolas out, so there wouldn't even be a point in trying. 
if Vraska can get back to Nicobolas and not be instantly killed for being a traitor, she will get a prominent place in his plan for Ravnica. He has promised her the position of guild leader of the Golgari. And we don't know exactly what Bolas's plan is, but we have an idea that it includes the guild leaders. So Jason Vraska set up a plan to have Vraska be what is essentially a sleeper agent. Jace can pack up Vraska's memories of Ixalan and everything that they did, replace certain pieces here and there with stuff that'll be convincing enough to fool Nicol Bolas, because he's not going to be looking for generic stories of what pirate Vraska did on Ixalan. He's going to be looking to see if she met anyone interesting, or if she actively betrayed him in some way. So if Jace can package all of their memories together and replace them with Vraska just being her Gorgon self, then Bolas won't even think twice. And then when the time is right, Jace is going to unpack Vraska's memories, and they're going to betray Nicol Bolas, and it's going to be great. But we can't do it right now because it's too dangerous. I also appreciate that one of the key points in their plan to stop Nicol Bolas from taking over Ravnica involves the usage of Niv-Mizzet, because, quote, he could challenge Nicol Bolas both physically and mentally, plus he'll be furious to know there's a dragon smarter than he is. Point one is, yeah, that's a really good plan. Niv-Mizzet is practically an elder dragon in terms of Ravnica. He's not quite old enough to make the cut, but he'll get there in a few years. And secondly, the idea that they also need a dragon to challenge Nicol Bolas physically... <laughs> is kind of hilarious to me. Like, hey, we can have a bunch of the strongest planeswalkers in the multiverse come together and work out this plan, but we definitely need another big dragon to fight Nicol Bolas because he's a big dragon. And then perhaps the most important thing in this story, more important than the information about Azor or about Ugin or that Nicol Bolas wants to go to Ravnica or that, of course, Tezzeret comes and takes the immortal sun more important than any of that, Jason Braska have a date. They, they schedule one. They don't. Ha they haven't had it yet, but it's gonna happen. This ship has sailed. They're I'm so pleased. Coffee in a bookstore. The next magic story is who tells the stories, and it starts immediately after the immortal sun disappears, while all the people are currently standing on top of the immortal sun. Quatli and Angrath, the two planeswalkers still in the room recognize that they can planeswalk again. Quatley goes, oh, this is interesting. And Angrath goes, yes! Yes, finally! I hate this plane, I hate this city, and I wish you all a viscerally painful death. Then the equally important, see you never, pathetic fools! We haven't talked a whole lot about Angrath. We've mentioned his beats in the story, but Angrath as a character and his inclusion on Ixalan I don't know if I have the right words to describe the emotions that I feel about it. Because it's so good is the word that I'm going to say 80 times here. And I'm going to try to avoid just doing that. But he's turned into way more than a signpost character. He is a red-black character that still kind of embodies the viciousness and violence that we get from red-black characters. But it's just slightly off because of the motivation. He's not bloodthirsty for the sake of it. He's... Bloodthirsty because he's been here for 14 years, and he's fed up, and he's tired, and he's been trying for so long to get off of this stupid rock. And he's given a range of emotions. There's despondency for not being able to see his kids. There's frustration with pretty much everything else on the plane. It's not just blind rage. 
but we see the more impulsive and impatient parts of him when he's just talking with Huatli. Not fighting with Huatli physically, but just trying to get her to understand the process of planeswalking because she's definitely done it. And he can see that. And then his voice is just fantastic. Everyone else is so caught up in the adventure of the plane and the meaningfulness of Araska and what it would do if anyone were to take control of the city. And he's like, oh my god, can I leave yet? I understand this is all very important to you people, but please, please just let me go home. It's actually kind of funny because, in a way, he spends his entire time with the kind of A-plot for the plane. The A-plot being... There is the Immortal Sun, there is a Razka, someone wants to take control of this. Lots of different someones want to take control of this. And he spends his time saying the thing that I kind of get to understand as I'm reading these stories. It's that Razka's not really the important part of this story. Jason Vraska are. And it's not to say that it's meaningless. There's plenty of people who have a stake in the story. But Angrath is there the whole time saying... This doesn't really matter. I'm a planeswalker, and my personal struggles and the emotions that I am feeling and coming to terms with certain things in my life are more important. Meanwhile, Jason Frasca are planeswalkers who are having personal struggles and coming to terms with the things in their lives. <laughs> it's weird, but I love this little hate monster. He is one of our only recent examples of a red-black character that isn't either a jerk or a member of the Rakdos cult, who are kind of insane. He's down to earth, he's relatable, he has things he cares about, and he really doesn't care about certain other things, but he really cares when things get in the way of him caring about the things he cares about. C, the Immortal Sun. And by association, Ixalan. Once the Immortal Sun vanishes into presumably a planar portal's gateway, St. Alenda has her inevitable confrontation with the two members of the Legion of Dusk that are here, Maverick Fane and Vona, Butcher of the Magan, and puts to words some of the feelings she expressed when Huatli and Angrath found her, and that is, you're all wrong, you were supposed to learn humility, empires are temporary, what are you doing, take me to your queen. Then, Huatli returns to the Sun Empire, riding Zakama, the three-headed elder dinosaur. I'm very slightly conflicted about this moment, because on the one hand, okay, she just, like, found Zakama and... I mean, she talks to dinosaurs, and she's very good at it, so I guess she can ride Zakama. So the narrative part of me is a, a little bit, it feels it's a little bit contrived. The Timmy in me says, of course she's gonna ride the biggest dinosaur! Are you kidding me? You can't put dinosaur rider and a massive three-headed dinosaur in the same story, in the same setting, and not have the dinosaur rider ride the giant dinosaur! If nothing else, Ixalan Block has let me say the word dinosaur gleefully so many more times than an average week. Not to impinge on Jacob's dinosaur time, but Huatli goes on to speak with Emperor Apatzek about her journey, about the Immortal Sun, the fact that it isn't there, and she realizes that what she is going to tell him is not what he wants to hear. Because the Emperor did not want the Immortal Sun specifically. What he wanted was the impetus to and the power to expand the Sun Empire. His goal and the outcome he desired were set well before he told Huatli to go get the Immortal Sun. And she tells him the truth, despite knowing that it's not what he wants to hear. The heart of the conflict here is the difference in how Huatli and the Emperor interpret stories. 
And this is Watley coming to terms with the power that stories have and how it can be manipulated. Watley tells Apatzek the story of what happened, the truth, because that's what stories are to her. They are the truth of the world. Stories are the truth about how we interact with the world, how we interact with each other. And she tells him that story of how they work together to take Arazka and to protect it. And the emperor says, that's the wrong story. And Watley goes, no, that's, that's the story. And Apatzek thinks of stories as directives, almost. Stories are things that can compel people to do things. This is a story that, while it is true, is not going to get people to do what he wants them to do. And he might think that his cause is just, but at the end of the day, he is rejecting a story that is true because it cannot be used to manipulate his people. He won't have the support he needs for his military campaign. So, he takes away the ability for Hotly to tell a story to their people, which is all that she's wanted to do for this entire arc. As she fumes about not being able to tell the stories, she has a heart-to-heart -heart with her family, and she admits to them that she's a planeswalker, in a way. She tells them the story of how she went to another world for a little while, and her entire family goes, what are you still doing here? And she says, I'm a storyteller, I have to tell your stories. And they go, there's stories nobody's even heard of out there. There's a bunch of worlds out there that you can just go to and find new stories. And you're going to stick around here and let the Emperor tell you what you can and can't say? No, 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 no. You need to go. You're going to have way more fun and tell way more important stories if you go. This is kind of the irony of her interaction with the Emperor. The Emperor believes that he has absolute authority and tells her what she can and can't say. But unbeknownst to him, Watley has power greater than really anyone on this plane with few exceptions. And she has far more agency as a result. Even better, because he said that you are not the warrior poet, she doesn't have an obligation to stick around and perform that duty. She is totally free to wander the multiverse and bring back powerful stories. So she leaves to go to the golden city that she saw the first time she tried to planeswalk, and we get to the last story of Rivals of Ixalan, Wool Over the Eyes. Which is a series of pretty fast-paced vignettes that help to wrap up the story of this block. That begins with Watley very easily, with almost no delay, meeting another planeswalker, Sahili Rai. A little bit plot convenient, I will admit. But their friendship is so cute. It really is. Watley starts describing dinosaurs, and Sahili says, I need to make these. Come with me. They're gonna make a dinobot. Funnily enough, Magic already has a dinobot card. Me Grimlock going to win Scrapper Championship. Oh god. Have crossovers gone too far? Not far enough. Then we get to Angrath's epilogue, where he gets to go home, and he goes to his forge, and he sees his two daughters who haven't seen him in a long time, and they're really excited to see him, and he cries, and I cry. And contrary to my guess, neither of them are dead. It's implied that their mom is dead, but shh, 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 shh. it's okay. It's okay. They're both alive, and they're happy to see him, and he's home. The murder monster gets to go home. Speaking of murderers getting to go home, next we go to Vraska. Vraska gets back to Bolas's meditation plane, and he goes through memories to make that check that Jacob mentioned earlier, and sees nothing out of the ordinary. 
everything is fine here. Also, cutely, there are one or two cards that depict events that didn't happen in the story, and these are her new memories, most notably Golden Demise. Golden Demise depicts Vraska using the power of the Immortal Sun to turn all of the different factions to gold, including, as part of this fakey made-up memory, Azor. So Bolas now is totally happy with Vraska's work and also thinks that Azor is out of the picture. They part ways. Vraska gets a little note that says, you can go kill Gerard if you want. So she gets ready to kill Gerard. As we get back to Jace, he moves to finally do as was intended and rendezvous with the Gatewatch on Dominaria. He locates Gideon's signature, I guess, Spark, probably, and realizes that Gideon's moving really, really fast, which makes it very, very difficult to planeswalk to him. Through great effort, Jace manages this and ends up on whatever this fast-moving object is. Which, is this a sky... We'll hang on, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Gideon is indeed there. Jaya Ballard, at this point, now significantly older than she was last time we saw her, is also there. And she calls Jace a nerd! I think a bookworm, right? That's adult talk for nerd! <laughs> it's a more specific kind of nerd. It's a subset of nerd. You know who makes that kind of distinction? A nerd? Nerds! I know we've talked about that XKCD comic before. It's a Venn diagram of nerds, geeks, and the intersection being people who care about the distinction between nerds and geeks. Okay, let's keep moving here, because I really need to talk about the speculation for a little bit before we have to wrap. The Sun Empire controls Araska. Great. It was voted on. It was decided. Okay, hang on. Talk turkey here. Nickel Boss has all the components he needs to invade Ravnica in a really spectacular way. But why does he care? Why specifically would he want to take over Ravnica? The answer probably can't be, well, it's the first stop on conquering planes because of reasons. Because no, just conquering a plane is way too small potatoes for Nickel Boss's plan. Maybe it's because it's a real big plane. Yeah, no. <laughs> Jacob and I have a theory, and it lines up very well with some of the discussion that Nickel Boss and Vraska had, and some of the discussion that Vraska and Jace had. Through the situation with Azor, we know that the Guild Pack's magic can apply to someone that is a Ravnican being, regardless of whether or not that person is on Ravnica. It can affect Planeswalkers who are not necessarily on Ravnica, so long as they are at least, to a degree, Ravnican beings. This meaning that they are tied into the structure of Ravnica. And in a weird way, what I said about it being a big plane actually comes into play. Ravnica is a dense plane. It has a lot of laws, it has a lot of rules, and those rules have weight because of the way that the Guild Pact works. So you're able to carry some amount of that inherent hieromancy with you so long as you are embedded into the structure of the plane. Azor is affected by the Guild Pact's magic because he is a Perrin, which has weight within the laws that are associated with the Guild Pact. This is where our idea comes together. Our thought is that Nicol Bolas wants to install Planeswalkers as the leaders of each guild, then either gain the Guild Pact's power or have absolute control over the Guild Pact, such that those Planeswalkers are magically bound to his word, regardless of where they are, making Ravnica the perfect place from which to begin any multiversal plot, up to and including conquering the multiverse with your forced-to-be-loyal 
Planeswalkers. Planeswalkers, up to this point, have been a tool, but also a liability in any of Nicobolas' schemes. Because they can travel between planes, but they can travel between planes, like, away from you, if you were to want to punish them in some way. So, they are extraordinarily powerful, but slippery little buggers, if you want to exert complete domination on them. So why not just take a perfectly functional system of law that is already proven to work off-plane and trap a bunch of planeswalkers in it. Now that we've covered the broad strokes, well, more than broad strokes, a good amount of Ixalan block story, let's take a moment to discuss what we expect out of Dominaria. And originally I would have told you the confrontation coming to a head, but now we know that has to take place on Ravnica, which makes Dominaria the lead-up. We are given an insight into a couple of things that will almost certainly factor into Dominaria's story. The first is Jaya Ballard. We've gotten so much key art of her now, and she's shown up in the story in all but name. She's gonna be there, and she's gonna be great. That's easy prediction number one. Two, we're going to somehow need the Gatewatch to come back together at least a little bit. Jason and Gideon have met back up, but we have no idea if Chandra or Nisa or Liliana are really in any state to do anything. Liliana's probably okay, but whether she would be helpful is up for debate. I know a few things because I've been reading articles. Uh-huh. Liliana and Gideon are going to be a central part of Dominaria's story, as they are going to try and take down the last of Liliana's demons. Bells and Locke of the hard-to-pronounce. Ooh, okay. Bells and Locke. I'm going to try and keep this short because I don't know all the details, but also I'd be getting into a bunch of other stuff. Bells and Locke has taken over the Cabal. Oh, they still exist? Yep. But they're a little different now because they got a demon at the head. And it won't be as easy as showing up and eating him with a crocodile. As much as I loved that. They're going to have to go through the most nefarious and treacherous of all villains. Bureaucracy. Dun, dun, dun. Well, sure, when you fanfare it like that, it's not going to sound that impressive, but it means that there's <laughs> more stuff to get through to get to the big demon instead of just showing up and eating the demon. So this is going to yeah, be a real yep. fight. Similarly, and this is slightly verging back into personal territory, a thing that I need Dominaria to do story-wise is make me like Liliana, because I don't like Liliana very much anymore after this story. That's fair. Yep. It's tough. And it it was very important to access that part of her character and her interactions with Jace because it told an amazing story that was really powerful. However, it also means that she's not as much of a protagonist in my eyes anymore because she's real bad for everyone that she gets into contact with. It's rough. More anti, less hero. Yes, little, little too much on the anti side. However, I am told that the professional author that they've brought on to do the story for Dominaria, which is another interesting story tweak that we'll get back to in a second, has experience with making monstrous characters more down-to-earth and relatable. So if we can get a side of Liliana that not necessarily excuses this behavior, because I don't think that's going to be possible for me, but can express it from Liliana's perspective in a more relatable way, that's kind of what I need in order to get back on board and having her be a full-fledged member of the Gatewatch again. A number, I think four, if I'm counting correctly, thing to expect from Dominaria, and this is kind of a given, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's an easy shot. 
This is Magic's 25th anniversary. It's our first time going back to Magic's quote-unquote home plane in a long, long time. There's going to need to be a lot of nostalgia slash wrap-up slash updates about this place. We already know that Tefiri, Karn, and Juara are going to be prominently featured in this story. Also, the key art for the set has what looks a lot like, a heck of a lot like, the Thin of Predator flagship, which was the flagship of the Phyrexian fleet, like OG Phyrexians led by Yogmoth fleet on Dominaria. And since it was probably an interplanar ship, I imagine elsewhere, but irrelevant. What I'm hoping this means we'll see is Dominarian story given slightly more modern sensibilities such that it is reasonable and structured and not as scattershot as previous Dominarian story has been. The author who is doing the primary writing for Dominaria's story is Martha Wells, who I'm not familiar with, but I will become familiar with before we get to Dominaria. She has apparently been a longtime fan of magic and is working directly with the same narrative team that was at the core of Ixalan's story. Allison Lures, Kelly Diggs, and Greg Lubin, I believe, was the editor. This isn't really a prediction, but I wanted to bring it up because I'm slightly ambivalent about it because I really, really loved Ixalan Block's story. Not just for the personal reasons, but also because it had a lot of density to it and it paid off in a lot of ways. Great character moments between our primary Planeswalker characters, nice tie-ins to various bits of lore from lots of different time periods in the story. But to hear them tell it, making that kind of a story with just those three people was also not sustainable. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Martha Wells brings to the story, because it's going to be a personal flair. This is going to feel different. We haven't had this happen before. New things are scary, but I think it's going to be fun. That about wraps us up with our unofficial magic story for Ixalan, and I think I know what I want to know from you, the viewers slash listeners. I always say that. Listeners, not viewers. <laughs> to talk about next week, and that is... Azorius or Azorius? <laughs> Discuss. Let us know on Twitter. Also, for me, you can do Bryce's thing. In fact, do Bryce's <laughs> thing because we're going to have a debate about it the next time. But for me, if you could go to at MTG Allison with one L or at Kelly Diggs on Twitter and thank them for Ixalan Block's story. Greg Lubin doesn't have a Twitter or else I'd tell you to go thank him too. But definitely go thank those guys because they worked really hard to put together this honestly fantastic piece of work. Well, Jacob, if someone wanted to share their own crackpot or not so crackpot theories, I would say, about how Magic Story will progress with Nickel Balls' plot, where would they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And you didn't hear it from me, but I think Bablovia's involved. And Bryce, if someone wanted to message you about the fact that we haven't said the word weatherlight on this podcast episode yet, oh, where would they be able to find you? They would be able to find me with a little bit of egg on my face on Twitter as walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. Thank you all for following us through this delightfully twisted maze of magic story. And until next time, happy planeswalking, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>